looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by Northeastern by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You drive me wild. <laughs> what up, Crazy Train Radio? You look like hell. And I could look the same. What's the photo for? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Truth, 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 I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch is got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. I'm one crazy new Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. y'all this is adam marcus writer and director of jason goes to hell and secret santa and you are taking a ride on crazy train radio badass hey folks it's your least favorite host in the podcast world croc jonathan Steele. boy do we have a good one for you today 
episode, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, and that includes the one from Boston above me on the way this screen is set up. But I heard a quote, and I'm going to try to sound smart here. And I think I heard it. I heard it from our guest who is joining us tonight, talking about not only himself, but it makes sense for the entertainment field in general. And I think I might be paraphrasing, but the quote was something along the lines of, your fame is not measured by the amount of fans, but your fame is measured by the amount of people that hate you. And I certainly know that, both doing this and my personal life. So I got a long list. He also, this guest, was morally corrupted, if I heard this correctly, by seeing that movie, All That Jazz at the Age of 10. But most people would know him from directing and writing Secret Santa. And for those on the video call, we'll see this little nugget that I have Shout Factory, Jason Goes to Hell. Let's welcome Mr. Adam Marcus. How you doing, sir? I'm great, man. I'm great. How are you guys doing? Good. And I don't think you've met Aaron, but Aaron I'm not. Is, he, hey, very nice to meet you. Yes. Nice meeting you. Happy Aaron. to be here. Yeah. Glad to be with you. And that's because he gave me money to be here, but that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> I won't tell his wife. Uh, <laughs> so obviously we've been talking about doing this for a while, but schedules happen, everybody's personal lives, professional lives. And I will say this publicly because I made the joke privately. I think a lot of this scheduling has to do with Miss Julie Michaels putting in a good word for me. So that check that I was going to initially write to her is now going to be double. Excellent. Excellent. Not that she needs it, but that's fantastic. Yeah, a couple extra zeros. Why the hell not? Why not? So anyway, we won't make fun of Julie too much because I know I'll hear it later. So yeah. how are you doing and what's going on in your world? I'm great, brother. I'm great. Uh, honestly, it's been, uh, you know, the last couple of years with COVID and all the rest of it has been um, weirdly jammed up because I think a lot of people suddenly wanted to, because we couldn't make stuff, we couldn't go out and shoot things. A lot more people wanted to, you know, write books about, about these movies and talk about these movies online and podcast about them. And uh, I do have to tell you, I've had to become a lot choosier about the, you know, the folks that I, that I talk with and, uh, and Julie really didn't just put in the good word for you. Julie raved about you. So you got to know that going in. She is, um, she is an advocate cause she's a fan. Uh, so that's pretty cool. And if Julie gives somebody the, the thumbs up, I'm like, well, then I have to make sure that happens immediately. Absolutely. And, Love got to know her both off air, but doing a chat with her because she would when we did a what was it? I asked her for a watch along with, but it didn't work. Roadhouse. We were watching Roadhouse. Sure. sure. We did a, a special watch along of Roadhouse for my birthday back in August. She couldn't make it scheduling and all, which was cool. But Julie is just awesome. And as you know, I don't have to tell you, tough as nails. Yep. She's an amazing woman. Absolutely amazing human being. And, you know, and the reason I know, you know, she's tough as nails is because of the infamous story that you've told. And she's told on many occasions of carrying her off the set. Oh, I'm good. But yet her feet were bleeding. So what actually was that from your perspective? 
Well, what happened was um, we were doing her uh, famous run at the beginning of Jason Goes to Hell when she's running from Kane Hodder as Jason Voorhees. Uh, and, you know, Julie's a stunt woman and she's a tough, tough lady. Um, uh, quite frankly, tougher than most stunt men I know. And she um, she's running through the woods. She's in nothing but this towel that was Velcroed to her. Uh and, you know, Julie's one of those people that never complains about anything. She's she's a trooper. And she and I had already developed in a very short time. We developed a real friendship and, and uh, what I was what I hoped would be a real trust. And the thing is, I am very persnickety about people's safety on my set. Um, there is nothing more important to me, nothing more paramount. Uh, as far as my job is concerned. And I know a lot of people like to lay it off on, on, on technical people and other people on set. Uh, the director has to be the person who is the first and last um, to sign off on things. And Julie was running and the shot was amazing. And we had cleared a path for her through this wooded area. But no matter how you clear an outdoor path, if you're, yes, if you're a huge studio film, you're gonna, you're gonna literally lay in a floor underneath that path and you're gonna have lots of money to do that. We had no money to make Jason Goes to Hell. The entire movie was made on two and a half million dollars. So Julie had to run on the ground and we cleared it all out for her. And here's the thing, it's a, it's a, a filmmaker trick when you want someone to be running through the woods, um, you guys have all seen, you know, Fred Flintstone cartoons. You know, they keep going past the same six buildings in Fred Flintstone when they're taking a drive with the family. Well, it's the same thing in low budget horror movies. Actually, it's the same thing in some high budget horror movies, too. Uh, when you don't have a steady cam on set and all you've got is sticks, you put the camera on sticks, you place it in the middle of a large wooded area. You carve a track in that wooded area and then you have the personal run in a circle while you move the camera in a circle. Well, nobody knows you're running past the same trees. No one knows that. So suddenly that actor is running past the same group of bushes, brambles, and trees, and you're not moving the camera at all. You're just turning the camera with the DP behind it. That's it. So that's what we were doing with Julie. So we had run two takes, looked great. Everything was really good. We had done one on her upper body, one on her feet but I needed another shot and just one more take of it. And I said, Jules, you okay for another take? She said, no problem, boss, ready to go. And she starts walking away from me and I looked down on the ground and I saw some blood on the ground behind her. And I said, Julie, why aren't you wearing the booties we got you? We'd gotten her booties. I said, honey, you don't, you don't gotta do that without. I said, Julie, are, you, are your feet cut? She's like, no, 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 I'm good, boss, I'm good. I was like, come here, come here. And she reluctantly walked over to me. I said, lift up your feet. She showed me and her feet were all cut up. And she was ready to do a third take. And I immediately um, knelt down, lifted her up off the ground, and I walked her off set to the set medic. And I said, I want her bandaged up, clean all this stuff up, and get the boots on her. And... Um, I got to tell you, you know, we just interviewed Julie about the making of Jason Goes to Hell in the documentary we're making, uh, Hearts of Darkness, the making of the final Friday. And yes, I know it's the same name as the name of the Apocalypse Now documentary. There's a reason for that, which everybody will find out when they see the movie. Um, so I interviewed Julie about this with uh, with our with our team. 
And I have to tell you, um, the number of times Julie cried in the interview was remarkable and got all of us behind the camera sobbing. And this was one of those times where she suddenly realized, you know, Julie almost left the business before Jason goes to hell because she had had some really terrible experiences, really ter terrible and um, demeaning and, you know, things that are, are not supposed to happen to people in our industry and happen all the time. And it had almost broken this remarkable young woman. And it was that moment alongside of a number of other moments that I didn't even know about um, that changed her feelings and opinion of what she could be in this business and how she could be perceived. And uh, Julie is one of the top stunt people in our industry now because of that. Um, so it was an amazing moment for both of us. For me, it was a day on set. I was like, I don't let people on my set get hurt. And I did not even want her to walk to the medic. I was like, no, 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 I will carry you to the medic. And I carried her to the medic. Um, because that's, by the way, that's not even, it's not even gentlemanly. It, it is, if it had been a guy light enough that I could have picked up, I would have done that. Um, it is called being responsible and, and, and actually taking, um, taking charge of your set and taking the responsibility for the people on your set. So yeah, Julie, um, Julie and I have been, uh, have been super close ever since that moment. She's, I, I adore her. Um, we, in fact, were just talking yesterday on the phone. Um, and you know, she's an important part of my, my, my filmmaking family and, uh, and a very close friend. And we recreated that moment, by the way, in the documentary, we did recreate the moment of me lifting her up. Um, and it was very cute. Cause she was like, no, you're going to hurt yourself. I was like, what are you insane? <laughs> you, you, you weigh like a buck 20. What are you kidding? Uh, you're fine. And, uh, she weighs less than that. And I picked her up and it was light as a feather. And she was like, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing this. And I'm like, yeah, of course I'm going to do this. <laughs> And, you know, like you said, and before I go off track with Julian, I recommend people go and listen to the episode we did with her because I did have her cry a little bit at the end because there was a, I can't do the story justice that we told of hers. And it was during the filming of Roadhouse. Mm -hmm. It was one of those major impacts yep. stories for her. Like I said, I'll leave that there and sure. let you guys go listen to the story. But she did have some really heavy stuff go on during that filming. And, yep. and, you know, I can understand that in having conversations with her and everything. But like I said, both Julie, on and off air. Julie's a badass. And you know what? The, look, you know, we're 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 very fortunate now that the kind of. uh abuses that used to go on in our industry towards women in particular um, have uh, have been now recognized and are being called out much more frequently. We're not over it yet. I mean, that, that, that shit's still happening. Um, but it is happening a lot less and people are really, they're losing careers over treating people unkindly, let's say. Let's, let's put it as lightly as that. Yeah. Um, but when Julie and I first started in this industry, um, abuse by the way of not just women of men um of younger people of um of minorities that stuff was rampant um guys the amount of bullying i went through from my boss on jason goes to hell was shocking 
was shocking. Any one of the abuses would have been in today's world reported to HR and that person wouldn't be allowed on set anymore. Um, So that's kind of the world we used to live in. And I will say, look, I got to tell you, I'm fine. And, you know, you weather you weather the storm. It's all good. Um, But, you know, the stories of producers throwing stuff at people and screaming obscenities and belittling that stuff happened all the time. Like it, it was that was a day at the office. That wasn't even a thing. I used to have a boss who literally used to throw breakfast food at me. And like if there weren't enough blueberries in the muffin, it hit your head. And you're like, I didn't make the muffin, dude. I just bought you a muffin. And that was normal. So, yeah, our industry has changed. man. The world has changed. Uh, and, and in that regard, for the better. Yeah. And so I know this is wrong because you mentioned the blueberry muffin. I, I'm thinking of that scene in Casino with, when they go in the kitchen. I want yep. the exact same am- amount of blueberries in these muffins. I've- hey, hey, at least De Niro's yelling at the chefs. Yeah. At least that's the guy making the muffins. I'm just talking about the guy who bought the muffin. <laughs> Look how many blueberries your muffin has and how many mine has. Yours is falling apart. I have nothing. What are you talking about? It's like everything else in this place. You don't do it yourself. It never gets done. How long can this go on? From now on, I want you to put an equal amount of blueberries in each muffin. An equal amount of blueberries in each muffin. You know how long that's going to take? I don't care how long it takes. Put an equal amount in each muffin. You know? Uh, so, yeah. yeah. Have you guys ever seen Swimming with Sharks? Yeah. And it, it, funny enough that, you know, Kevin Spacey <laughs> ended up playing that role. Um, but, uh, but that's accurate. That was our industry. In a big way, that was our industry. It's not anymore. It's really not. And I, I would think the big thing is on that particular subject is yeah. more and more people are speaking up. If something don't seem right, they will cry foul if it don't you seem bet. appropriate. You bet. And and actually, what's better than that, forget about the people who are speaking up for themselves, which is great. Like people are now being empowered for that. But there's still that worry, like, oh, my God, am I going to get a bad reputation? Will people ever hire me again? What's awesome is that other people are speaking out on behalf of people that have been abused. And that's an amazing thing because that person's, that person's not going to get fired. They, when you see something, say something has become a mantra in our industry and a really powerful one. Um, and look, again, m- my take on it has always been treat everybody with the respect that their art deserves. Treat them like the human beings that you, you want to be treated a certain way, treat everybody the same way. That's it. it. It's simple. And, you know, it's sort of biblical logic, I guess, which is definitely not me. Um, but I but I respect the idea of, you know, treat others as you would want to be treated. So I think you got to live your life by that. That's it. So I um, no Julie. Julie's remarkable. She's a badass. She's a freaking warrior. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be one chapter of her story. Um, exactly. Julie, we love you, but we're moving on. Uh, love it. <laughs> you know, because of all that you said there, yeah. and I guess this is a good time to bring this up to. Sure. And I've heard you mention in other conversations and such, and I know COVID has put a dampering on 
going out physically and shooting projects and stuff. Yes. Yeah. But with your company that you run, mm-hmm. I know you, or I've heard rumors. We know everything on the internet is true. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. But you have a couple of projects uh, coming up, but I do. whenever you've done a project or written a project, directed, whatever form or fashion you've been involved with something, mm-hmm. you guys like to address current social issues always, and, and enjoy having the balls to take on these, some of these big topics. Why yep. is that? Um, well, here's the thing. When, when uh, Deborah, my writing partner and my wife uh, of, the, of the last uh, 29 years, shocking, um, we, we met actually when I was doing Jason Goes to Hell when I was literally like a teenager. Um, uh, the two of us had written Texas Chainsaw. And uh, we were sitting, we had been asked by Lionsgate if we wanted to see a screening of the movie because we had not seen it yet. And this was about a month before the movie came out. And everybody at Lionsgate was like doing, you know, backflips about this movie. Like, so happy, so thrilled. The marketing department loved the movie. Everybody at the place loved the movie. And they're like, we want to set up a screening for you and dad. You guys wrote this thing. You should be there for it. And the making of that movie was for the writing portion of it, not because of the studio, but because of one of the producers on that film was a nightmare uh, for us. It was really like, it was truly the single worst producer experience we'd ever had. That being said, we're good soldiers. We get our work and the studio was amazing. Lionsgate was incredible. Um, But remember, Lionsgate didn't make the movie. They just distributed the film. They were there for the beginning of the writing. And so they hired Deb and I, and we had an incredible time with them. Then this one producer was such a maniac that Lionsgate said, we're not giving you any money. Go find your financing elsewhere. We'll put the movie out in theaters. So Deb and I went to see the movie. And we're in uh, this beautiful screening room at Lionsgate alone, completely alone, just sitting in a theater, just the two of us with, a, you know, and it's a, it's a, it's an actual movie theater, right? It's just the two of us. And they run the movie. And at first we are thrilled. We're just like, this is amazing. And then stuff starts happening that we're like, wait a minute, we didn't, what is that? We didn't write that. What, what? Why are they picking up a hitchhiker? There's no hitchhiker in our script. We, we actually worked that out with the studio. They didn't want a hitchhiker either. What is this? Why is there a, a smartphone in this movie? The movie takes place in 1993. It's 1993. There's no smartphones. There's no smartphones for 14 more years. <laughs> Why is that in this movie? Do your thing, cuz? What? And my favorite of all the sins in that movie is the um, is the girl from Chicago who is not from Texas saying, welcome to Texas, motherfucker. Why? Why are you saying that you're from Chicago? What is this? When that happened, um, Deb and I recoiled in our seats. We were thrilled that the studio loved the movie. We were thrilled when the movie came in number one. It only helped our careers. Um, The original script Deb and I had written was brutal. It had a lot to say. Um, It went into the history of the Sawyers in a really cool way. 
Um, it gave the Sawyers and the Hart and the Hartmans this sort of Hatfields and McCoy kind of thing going on. It gave a reason why the Sawyers had a bunch of money that nobody knew about. It also gave a reason for their systemic brain damage and why they were the way they were. We had all of this laid out in the movie. And this, uh, this producer uh, took our, our drafts and Frankenstein them. He actually cut them up and put them together the way he wanted to. And then the director brought in another writer who came in and did a polish for the director um, and turned the cast into the United Colors of Benetton and created a movie that was not the film that Deb and I intended on when we first wrote the script. That being said, there's a lot in the movie that we're really proud of. There's stuff that we go like, that's ours and that's a good scene. And we're thrilled that that happened. Um, but there's a, there's a ton of stuff that's not there that, that we were really proud of. Okay. It was at that moment that Deb and I turned to each other and went, you know what, man, this is for the birds. Like I'm done with this because the people who made the movie were not horror people at all. There's none of those guys have any real horror credits. None of them. And we sat there going, okay, um, why, why is it, you know, in, when I first started in the industry, you know, it was the eighties when I was working as a kid uh, for people like Sean Cunningham and the people who were doing horror loved the genre. They loved the genre so much that horror was considered the closest thing to porn. Horror had no love from mainstream, from the mainstream. We were bottom of the barrel. We were disgusting. Yes, we were that. We were that, man. We were. And uh, we were also every studio's dirty little secret. Remember, Paramount hated the Friday 13th films. Mm -hmm. They hated those movies. But those were the movies that were keeping the lights on at Paramount. That's the truth. We, have, we are always the genre that, that keeps everybody's lights on. But nobody wanted to talk about us, right? And it was things like Scream and The Blair Witch and all these things where suddenly these tiny little movies were making $100 million. Well, suddenly no one could keep us in a closet anymore. The other thing that happened was my generation all grew up and we loved these movies. We adored them. We were bathed in blood, right? Born out of that, that, that blood, right? Well, when we got old enough to be the ones calling the shots and running the studios, all that, we went, well, no, horror movies aren't porn. Horror movies are awesome. And guys like George Romero, he wasn't making a movie about zombies. I love when people call Night of Living Dead a movie about zombies. I'm like, there are zombies in the movie. I got it. Like, that's the, that's the headline. George Romero was making the very first reactionary film to the Vietnam conflict. George Romero made a movie that's got the best civil rights movement ending of any film ever made. And it's a zombie movie. So, and by the way, 10 years later, he produces the best film ever made about American capitalism called Dawn of the Dead. And literally, we are the dead walking through our malls, endlessly buying shit we don't need. So, the, the, the greatest people in our, in our industry, the, the Wes Cravens, the John Carpenters, you know, John Carpenter made a movie that is so prescient about what's happening right now in They Live that both sides want to take credit for it. 
of course, I want to go. You do know John Carpenter is, you know, is a giant lefty, right, guys? Like, you get that? He he didn't make a movie where the, the aliens are, are liberals. That's not John Carpenter. Sorry, guys. Sorry. Um, I know John. He's not that guy. Um, but here's the thing. All of these films had something to say. And that's the coolest thing about horror, man. It's like, we what we do is we take all the like nutrients and vegetables and then cover it with giant scoops of ice cream and serve it to you. And people eat that ice cream like, God, this is the best ice cream. And they have no idea that they're eating spinach, that we're feeding them something good for them alongside of giving them a really good time at the movies, which by the way, is always our first responsibility as filmmakers to give people a good time. And quite frankly, when I hear lines like do your thing, cause I'm like, well, that's not, you're not trying to give them a good time. You think you're being hip. You're not being hip. You sound stupid. You sound like a 45 year old executive trying to tell teenagers, this is how ki the kids talk. No, they don't. You have no idea how kids talk. So, because by the way, most of the people who make these films denigrate that same audience behind, behind closed doors. The number of times I've heard, well, our audience are idiots. I'm like, no, they're not. I'm like, are you guys kidding me? Horror fans are the savviest audiences in the world. There's nobody smarter. I'm telling you, I had people on Jason Goes to Hell in our first test screening. I had people in the audience who told me stuff that they saw in my film that I didn't even know was in the film. I was like, you oh. were there. You were there. I was there for the whole thing. And they were literally telling me stuff about my own movie where I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. I, I don't know if you guys ever, ever watched the old show, um, uh, uh, The Actors Studio. Do you remember that with uh, James Lipton, right? Yes. And there was an incredible episode where James Lipton had on, it was a two hour episode. He had Steven Spielberg on, right? And for me, Steven Spielberg is truly not only one of the greatest filmmakers to ever live, but he's one of the greatest horror filmmakers of all time. Um, Jaws is a horror movie. Sharks don't jump on boats and eat the crew. It doesn't happen. Um, so it's a horror movie. It's a monster film. Um, here's the thing. Uh, James Lipton had, had brought up Spielberg's parents, right? And his mother was a music teacher and his father was a scientist, right? And he said, so is that why in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you used music to connect these two worlds of scientists, that that was the language they could use. And if you watch the clip from this, Steven Spielberg, start, his eyes start to fill with tears. He had never realized it. And he turned to James Lipton and he said, I never thought of that, thank you. Thank you for that. That's absolutely what I was doing. And I didn't know I was doing it. I was trying to get my divorced parents to communicate with each other in my movie. And that's, guys, The Exorcist, right? The granddad, the, the greatest horror film ever made, right? The best, right? Top shelf, top shelf movie, okay? The Exorcist is about the deconstruction of the American family years before it happened. In the mid 1970s, our, all of our parents went out of their minds, right? They all went to Est and, you know, uh, smoked weed for the first time and everybody dropped out. And by the way, I'm not talking about the hippies. I'm talking about the people who were older, one generation older than the hippies who felt like they got screwed because the hippies got free love and drugs and all the good shit, right? 
And then they went, we just, we were responsible and went and had kids and bought cars and houses and we hate our lives. So all of them divorce each other. If you remember in The Exorcist, when Linda Blair overhears her mother screaming at her father about her father not coming for her birthday that year again, Linda Blair runs down the hallway, runs into her bedroom and flops onto her bed. The next time we see Linda Blair is when she comes down downstairs and pees on the floor. Linda Blair, the devil gets in at that moment. That's what that movie's about. That movie isn't about the devil. That movie is about the breakdown of the American family and about faith in our culture falling apart because there is no more family structure. It's gone. And, and again, this is the exorcist and no one ever talks about this part of it. And I'm like, the evidence is right in the film. Friedkin's literally leading you to that moment because of that argument on the phone with, with mom and dad. And this little girl's heart is broken and that's it. Devil's in. By the way, and let's take it this way. Forget the devil. Let's say that kid gets hooked on drugs because of the breakdown of that parental relationship and she has nobody watching the store anymore. Well, that's a story that happens all over America every single day of our lives now. It's funny so, that you were saying that because I... While I was editing another episode, yeah, I had a ironically intervention on, and you see this whole broken. Yep. So yep. a little irony there, and Adam didn't have control of my cable box, but that's a whole nother. <laughs> so, so here's the thing: when when we were watching Texas Chainsaw, which is a tremendously fun movie, and look, the cast is great. You know, Dan did a beautiful job as Leatherface. Love Dan, by the way, great guy. He's amazing. He's an amazing dude. Amazing dude. Um, Alexandra Dario, one of the kindest, loveliest people to work with. She's tremendous. Um, really good people in that, you know, involved in that movie. Um, the, the problem is that Deb and I were like, wow, I'm, I'm really tired of people who don't understand anything about our genre rewriting what we're trying to do and say and doing it badly. Look, if somebody rewrites some shit that I wrote and make it better, I will take credit for your shit all day long. I'm happy to. Awesome. I, I literally, first day on set, any, any movie I'm directing, I come on set, I say, guys, listen, if anybody has a good idea, I don't care if you're a PA, come up and talk to me about it. Like, get me the good idea because I will be happy to take credit for every good idea you guys come up with. And I mean it. Like, what am I, stupid? I, I, there's, I went to NYU where the auteur theory is sort of what you're taught. The auteur theory is fucking bullshit. It's bullshit. It's pretentious nonsense. One person is the author of that. That's a lie. Film is the single most collaborative art form there is because a director has to rely on all of these genius craftspeople around him to bring a vision to life. Yes, there's a captain of the ship. Sure there is. I'm the first one to say it. Every that DP, the, the the choice of who shoots the movie, right, is as important as everything the director does. Why is that voice less less significant than the director's voice? It's not the writer, for the love of God, the editor, the person who does the music. Guys, I mean, the famous story about John Carpenter showed the executives at, at 20th Century a, a cut of Halloween. They thought it was dog shit. Two weeks later, he brought it back with the score on it. They went, oh, my God, did you recut the whole film? He didn't recut one, one frame. He didn't change one thing in the movie. All he did was add the score. So 
I, um, I come from that place of like everybody, it's a collaborative work. We all do it together. And here's the thing. I just went, I'm, I'm done working with people I don't like and that I don't respect. I'm done. I hate it. I hate it. And you know, the, it, anyone who gets into the film business to get, to get rich is a fool. Um, you, you can get into the film business to be an executive, to get rich. That's, that's where you get rich. Okay. Um, if you want to be a filmmaker and get rich, good luck. Um, I've been very successful. I've done very nicely. Um, I, I am not living in the same kind of house that the executive who truly does not do what I do, never has boots on the ground. And by the way, they have an incredibly important job and they run the money. That's a big idea. It's mine, you understand? Mine! All mine! Get back in there! Down, down, down! Go, go, go! Mine, mine, mine! <laughs> but I got into this for the art. I got into this to be a storyteller and to tell stories that I'm passionate about. I got into this to have a great life. If you want to get rich, there's a ton of careers to get rich in. This ain't it. This is a career that you have to be compelled to tell stories. And we started Skeleton Crew. I called up uh, our, my best friend, Brian uh, Sexton. Brian had, was, uh, he was an associate producer on my Val Kilmer movie, which is a whole episode in and of itself. Um, and uh, Brian and Deborah and I had all decided we were tired of the kind of, of, of films we were making and tired of the kind of lives we were making. Yes, that is very true. Um, he, he's, a, he's more a vodka man, though. And you got to have a lot of pills with it. Um, and here's the thing. Um, we, uh, we just said we've had enough. We're done uh, making movies this way. And we're going to make movies our way. And I tell you, it's the best decision I ever made in my life. Um, I am infinitely happier. I make movies that I love and that I'm, that I'm really proud of. And by the way, if somebody doesn't like something I make, that's cool because at least I'm earning the dick. I'm earning someone saying something's crap. That's fine. I'll, I'll take responsibility for it. Um, when somebody gets pissed at me for the mask and Jason goes to hell getting blown up, I'm like, well, why don't you talk to Sean Cunningham about that? And you know, it's funny. There's a couple of things there with in the can of worms that you opened up with yeah. that answer. Sure. And one thing that stands out, and I noticed because you mentioned it during when we did a watch along of Texas Chainsaw. Mm -hmm. And that being said, you mentioned, and I've stolen this line. I got to tell you up front, I've stolen this because it makes perfect sense. Sure. There's, I believe it was you that said it. There's movie logic, then there's logic logic. Mm -hmm. And we can decipher that in so many different mm -hmm. levels. Mm -hmm. But and we mentioned Dan Yeager. I got to tell this story. I love telling sure. it. It's hilarious. And Dan's a great guy. Enjoy talking to him. He's like Mensa student. Yeah. Mensa level. You know, he's guy is so intelligent. Yep. Brilliant guy. And obviously can't wait to be able to have a drink with him. Maybe even touch a cigar. I'm not a smoker, but <laughs> you know, just to hang. That's Dan's vibe. Totally. Totally. But I have this uh, 11 by 17 poster in this office that I'm in and he signed and I had a, I happened to get him at a theater after seeing a movie. Sure. I got a stack like that. So I kept one for myself and he happened to be at a local convention nearby mm -hmm. and me, that me and Aaron were talking about before he jumped on the call here. And I had had him on previously 
during the early part of the show and all. And I said, hey, Dan, you got any of these? He goes, no, I love it. Here, gave him the stack I had, right? Uh-huh. And he kept one for me, signed it, no big deal. It's on a frame. Fast forward to about, I'm going to say, two years ago, two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. I have a going to be five-year-old niece and a two-and-a-half-year-old nephew now. Awesome. And and the niece would come in the room and go, and ne- you know the picture, it's Leatherface with the chainsaw pointing out because yep. they re- went with 3D. Oh, I mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I got one in my office. So she goes at first, at that time, about two, two-and-a-half, she goes, is that man nice? And, of course, I'm like, yeah, yeah, he's great. He's great. Yeah, don't worry about it. He's just playing, right? trying to pacify things but the best line was she goes can i give him a taffy i said you can't give a picture of taffy but i know the guy next time i see him well i'll take you with me and you can give him a taffy he's a nice guy he would love it <laughs> so fast forward to the watch along dance on the first one on and you know probably know dan lives in an old uh I think it's like an old mausoleum or something. He's got this place up in New York, which is awesome. And told him I got to check it out when I'm up in that area. So anyway, I tell him the story about the taffy. Well, he's sitting there. He's got his drink in hand, got a cigar, and he's actually got a home audience to watch this, watch along with us. And he get beforehand, he goes, well, damn it. I sure as hell better see that taffy. And obviously we're still in it. Dan, you got it. But that's Dan being Dan, you know? Awesome. It's awesome. But uh, I want to ask Aaron to jump on here because sure. he's Please. waiting patently. Please. Uh, Aaron, do you want, have sure. something you want to bring to the table, sir? Well, I do have a few questions. And yeah. again, thank you for letting me join. This is amazing. Um, so you, you talked a lot about the Texas Chainsaw and how it, it was changed and it didn't go as planned. Mm-hmm. Um I guess on the flip side of that, what project or film that you've worked on would you say went really well and perhaps that you're most proud of? Um, the, the movie that I'm, the, the single movie that I'm most proud of is, um, is Secret Santa, which, uh, which I made exclusively with Skeleton Crew. It was the first movie out of Skeleton Crew. It was, for, it was our first, it was our flagship movie. Awesome. Um, and uh, what's crazy about that movie is that we had just formed the company, literally just formed the company. And Brian, my partner, was at the American Film Market down in Santa Monica. And he called me from the market. This was on October 30th, 2015. And he said, uh, dude, we need a horror movie. Like, we got to do something right away. I'm like, great. Why? He said, because the market has no horror. Like, everybody's bought everything. And now there's like there's this need for horror films. I'm like, okay, sounds good. He says, what do we got that we can make for nothing like right away? And I looked at our screenplay library and I mean, Deb and I have written over 80 movies together. And um, I looked at some of the stuff that, you know, that that's just personal projects and nothing really fit the bill. I said, uh, listen, give me a few minutes. Let me call you back. He's like, great. So I immediately make a call to this woman, Pat Destro, who was an actor. I, I teach actors um, uh, for the last 27 years. I've, I've had my own studio in L.A. where I teach acting and directing. And so I've had a troupe of, you know, anywhere from 60 to 100 actors at any given time that I work with uh, every week. Um, and it, in fact, I was on Zoom with one of my classes just last night. And so we, um, I, I called this woman, Pat, who has been a student of mine probably for about 15 years now. 
and I said, hey, um, remember when you said I could shoot anything I wanted to in that huge cabin you have on Big Bear Lake? She's like, yeah, absolutely. Anytime. I said, great. I said, are you available uh, the first two weeks of January um, to be in it? Because I, I want to put you in there and I need the cabin. She says, great. I said, awesome. The two cabins next to your place. And when I say cabin, guys, it's a mansion that looks like a cabin. I said, the two mansions next to you, I know they rent them, you know, they're rentals. Can I get them for those first two weeks of January? Can you check? She said, I'll check it out. I said, also, can you make sure that all the neighbors, everybody in the neighborhood leaves their Christmas stuff up until right after Martin Luther King Day? <laughs> she said, I'll go ask. I said, great. 20 minutes later, she calls me. She says, you got the cabins. We're done. Like you got those. I said, great. I can house everybody there. She said, and the whole neighborhood said, they'll put up extra stuff for Christmas this year and they'll keep it all up. Perfect. Awesome. So now I've got a location. I've got all my set dressing done for free. I literally don't have to pay for any of it, right? I know where I'm housing my cast and crew, right? And I've got the location for free and one of my actors is booked. Now, mind you, I still don't have a story or a screenplay yet, but I had an idea. On October 31st, one day later, Deborah and I start writing. 20 days later, <coughs> we, have an, we have the screenplay. Um, I had already contacted every actor I wanted to work with, made sure they were all available for the two weeks. The one guy who said, oh, shoot, man, I got a thing in the middle of the thing. I said, no problem. I'll kill you first. Because I knew I'd have to shoot in order. I'd have to shoot the entire movie in sequence because I wouldn't have enough money to redress the set. So as things get bloodier and bloodier, I just have to let it happen. Right. And just keep it mm -hmm. consistent for the rest of the movie. Great. Um, we did a reading of that script on November 19th. We did a second read four nights later. I pre-produced the movie in December, which by the way, anyone who knows pre-production, if you're trying to pre-produce during the Christmas season, boom. <laughs> I pre-produced in December. We went up for the first two weeks of January to shoot the movie. I shot the entire film in 12 days and one night. I'm sorry, 12 nights and one day, forgive me. And uh, from the moment we put pen, pen to script, from the moment we started, from the day I started the movie till the day we had the movie in the can was 10 weeks exactly. And it was the single best experience I've ever had in my life. And it's that's the movie amazing. I'm the most proud of. Yeah. So, awesome. so that's the one I'm most proud of. But I will tell you this, honestly, um, Jason Goes to Hell was amazing. Like, that was an incredible shoot. I had a great time. Mm -hmm. I had an amazing cast and crew. Um, you know, I had a couple of bumps in the road, but that's fine. That's normal. That's just production. Um, I, I, I could not have had a better time on that. I also had an amazing time on my big Sundance winner, um, Let It Snow, which was my second film. Um, and was a romantic comedy that, you know, everybody had offered me every horror film that had a number at the end of it. Leprechaun, Back to the Hood, uh, <laughs> Amityville 97, um, Pumpkinhead 2, you know, all of those. And I was like, I don't want to be the guy who's got a number at the end of every movie title. And I wanted to do an original thing that nobody would think I would do. And so I made a romantic comedy and I shot that in 21 days in four states, 52 speaking roles, 50 separate locations, um, 
for under $200,000 on 35 millimeter film. And it was a union movie. And I had a great time. I had a great time. So, you know, it's, it's, again, if you love the people you're working with and on those movies I did, it's, life is grand. Wow. That's amazing. Thank you. That, that was oh, a, dude, my an pleasure. awesome answer. <laughs> my pleasure, man. Great question. That's a great question. Oh. A lot of people don't ask me what my favorite film, you know, like what my favorite film experience was and what's the one I'm most proud of. Um, and it's an easy answer for me because it's, uh, it's just a movie I really believe in and that I'm really proud of. So yeah. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate you that. You got it, dude. My, uh, please, my pleasure. <laughs> well, I heard in another chat uh-huh. that you had done. Yeah. And I know you, like you said, you are very selective in what you do. Mm-hmm. And rightfully so, because you have everybody that runs in their mom's basement and shit like it. I'm kidding folks. Not everybody does. No, but, uh, the thing you said that really stuck out for me, and this works because of how I'm wired per se, mm-hmm. a little bit of a bipolar and whatnot, and I yeah. say that respectfully. Sure, that sure. Turning off the creativity is hard for you. Impossible. I can't do it. So how in the hell do you are you able to take a break at all? Because I know you're not a drinker or drug guy or anything like that. Is there any way that you can go, okay, I need to take whatever. (laughs) Um, Let's put it this way. Okay. So when you say I'm not a drinker or a drug taker, I am a guy who has literally never in my life taken any drug whatsoever, none. Um, And I I drank one night of my life when I was 21 years old uh, in New Orleans because the girl that I was seeing at the time had promised me all kinds of amazing kinky sex if I would get drunk with her. Um, and, uh, you know, I was 21 and I was like, uh, you'll do anything for that. Um, you know, the immortal words of meatloaf. Um, so, uh, God, uh, God rest, God rest his soul. Um, here's the thing. The, 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 the short answer is no. Um, I, I have not had a vacation in decades. That, that's not a joke. Um, I, I, I had a honeymoon. Uh, by the way, I had a honeymoon in Paris because uh, five days into my honeymoon, I was at a film festival for Let It Snow. So um, at Deauville. So I, 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 you know that thing about like, if you love what you do, mm-hmm. you never actually go to work. That's kind of my life. Like when I write, and by the way, writing is hard. Any, anyone who pretends that writing isn't hard is a liar. They're just a liar. Um, but but I, I love writing. Like I love it. I love directing movies. I love editing. I love the process of making things. And for me, turning off my brain is when I'll go and like paint or I'll sculpt or I'll do other art forms that keep me creative, but that take me out of my brain in my work mode. So yeah, man, I, I, I don't, um, yeah, I don't, I will tell you this, look, um, you know, I've got, I've got an amazing wife who is, you know, who's also my business partner and my writing partner. This woman (laughs) is a saint folks. She is. She really is. She is. It's true. Um, she's also an incredible actress, which is how we met. She's, unbelievable actor um 
But the thing is, is that, you know, when you, when you're, when you have somebody that you really love and I really love my wife um, and I've got a beautiful family, um, you do find those moments of downtime. You do find those moments to, to decompress. And again, look, the, the actors that I work with every week are, are my, okay. When you, if you, when, and if you, any of your, your audience sees secret Santa, you know, the movie is kind of a big fuck you to family. And that family is kind of the monster um, that there's no one scarier than a parent that disagrees with your life choices when you show up for Thanksgiving dinner. There's nobody scarier. They are, they are the most horrifying. The, the amount of anxiety all of us go through when we go home for the holidays, because invariably it's either a shitty uncle or a sister that's terrible to you or a mom or dad who disapprove of everything. Right. And here's the thing. I'm one of those people that believes your family are the people you choose, not the people you were born to. I believe that we collect our family through our lives. And my brothers and sisters are my friends. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed, man. Like I've got an unbelievable family of friends. Like I'm, I can't begin to tell you like how many people I genuinely love and adore and would put my life on the line for. And there's no blood relation between any of us. Now, by the way, my brother Kip is one of my closest friends. So that's awesome. <laughs> like I'm lucky in that way, you know, but not everybody has that. And there are a lot of people in my family that I'm like, uh, we're good. We don't need to spend any more time together. I got you. Okay. So when you have that, you know, I, we will, I, I teach every Tuesday, Wednesday night in LA, right? And I start my classes. I get there about 6.30 is when we, we start rolling, right? And we never finish a class before 11. And sometimes we're not done until after midnight. Here's the thing. When we finish class, we'll go to a bar. We'll go hang out till two in the morning. Now, that's crazy, but it's because I'm having such a good time doing the work with these people that I'm nuts about that we don't want that to end. So the party keeps happening. And honestly, when that's your life, um, I need less and less time for vacation. I'm, I'm cool. I'm, I'm, I'm good. And you know, it's funny because with stuff going on with the pre-production with the show and everything else, I drive myself nuts a little bit sure. and I, I'll put, I won't reference the people I was talking about one time mm -hmm. uh, when I was having one of those uh, manic moments, let's just say. Okay. I, I will. I got to say thank you publicly to Adam. Cause I was telling Adam my dilemma. Cause we were talking by this point, he's been part of one of the two watch longs and whatnot. And got a good vibe on Adam. Cause he's got a good head on his shoulder. So anyway, I kind of telling him a little bit about XYZ that's going on and stuff. And Mr. Logical, Adam Marcus, is going, well, think about this. And I don't remember all the specifics now, but it's like A, B, C. You know, he puts it logically, I go. God damn it, he's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Adam's like. And it, it's one of those, it was right there in front of my face, but it's like, 
somebody needed to say it, and Adam said it. That's okay. awesome, dude. That's awesome. I got, but as far as the friends thing, yeah, uh, that becomes like family and stuff. And it, I told you this when I confirmed that we were going to talk today and stuff. And yeah. Julie actually asked me about it too, and I told her. I do a little guitar work and a couple other instruments and stuff. And sure. I help for the bed, musical beds and stuff. Mm-hmm. And the vibe I've always gotten from you, I'm going to, and you will hear this when this raps as the exit bed. And I think you would appreciate this. Mm-hmm. When the man was passing, he wrote a final album, Warren Zevon. Mm-hmm. And Eddie Vedder also did a cover of it. But the song is Keep Me in Your Heart for a While. Dude, it's one of my all-time favorite songs. One of my all-time favorite songs. So I happened to go to my brother-in-law's house because he has this actual setup to where you can connect to a soundboard and all that fun stuff to record. And I said, come on, come downstairs for me. He goes, what? Just Let's go. And we just started. And it's not the first time I've done this. I've done this. We've done Eagle songs. We've done, mm-hmm. you know, you mm-hmm. name it. Yeah. Cause I'm like an old soul that way. And it's like, yeah. He's yeah. like, man, what made you go Warren Zevon? Don't worry about it. I, yeah, I told him and he goes, yeah, he goes right on. People hear it publicly when they hear the end of this episode. Dude, seriously. One of my favorite songs. And by the way, if you've ever, if you've ever gotten a chance to see, you know, um, David Letterman was a huge Warren Zevon fan, not just of his music, but of the person of the man. Yes. Um, and uh, Warren made his last television appearance on Letterman's show. It was the last time he was seen in public um, uh, uh, musically. And he played that song. And David Letterman just bursts into tears, just crying right on camera on the show. Um, because he knew his friend was was going to be leaving. He knew his friend was, that was it. And dude, I'm telling you, I can't hear that song without immediately punking up. I, I get tears in my eyes. It just happens instantaneously. My wife is the same way. We both get so like worked up. And I, I'm a Zevon fan anyway, but that song is, a, that's a masterpiece. My, my wife literally has, has uh, instructions that if I pass before her, that's played at my wake. Exactly. And it's one of those that at the end of the day, we can do whatever you can have. Jason goes to hell and Texas mm-hmm. Chainsaw and mm-hmm. Secret Santa mm-hmm. and all this. That How were you as a person to people who knew you or interacted with you? Or, you bet. That's you bet. what, well, that, but that's that's what that, matters most. Dude, but that's what brings me back right back to the beginning of this conversation about Julie. Again, dude, look, I, and, and listen, you know, the, the quote that I said that I said as a much younger man um, about, you know, you're you're more famous for the people who hate you than the people who love you. Um, look, by the way, that's true. And and honestly, when it comes to Jason Goes to Hell in particular, which is the movie that I am most known for, um, which is hilarious since I made that movie when I was literally a child. Um, here's the thing. The people who hate that movie, so many of them, not so many of them, all of them own multiple copies of that movie. It's amazing. The people who have wished me ass cancer, who literally said, I hope you get ass cancer, or my favorite, this is my favorite quote, you raped my childhood. That's my favorite one. I'm like, wow, wow, really? I did that to you? Um, 
those people own three, four, five copies of Jason Goes to Hell. They've got the unrated DVD. They've got a VHS hidden somewhere in a closet. They've got it on Laserdisc. They've got the Blu-ray that has no commentary and is the cut crap-ass version of the Blu-ray. They've got the fucking, the, the Scream Factory box set. The It's like amazing. I'm like, do you know how, I'm like, guys, you bought me a swimming pool. Those of you that hate my movie bought me a swimming pool. Thank you. God bless. On on the um, the campaign for Hearts of Darkness, the making of the Final Friday, the documentary our company is making about uh, about Jason goes to hell. Um, we were uh, you know we were designing the perks for the you know for the the donations to the movie, right? And so we have a thank you, right, where people gave us twenty dollars, and at the end of the movie we have a thank you credit, and anybody who did that gets a thank you at the end of the movie, right? Uh, and that's 20 bucks, right? And it's it's the smallest amount of money you can give the film to just, you know, you, you get a credit on the movie. We give you a shout out online and you get your name in the film. Great. But then I was like, but you know what? What about all the haters? We're not amortizing the haters. We're not giving them a chance to contribute to this documentary. So, and it's still there, by the way. The Indiegogo site is still up because we've done so well. They let us keep the site up. Like, they're like, you can take donations all you want. I'm like, great. We literally got an executive producer to come on board two weeks ago. That's not a joke. Someone contributed another $5,000 to this movie just two weeks ago. So there is a credit on Indiegogo that is the fuck you. So you can say fuck you to me for $20. By the way, a lot of people have bought that perk. And I'm uh, like, so you're paying to tell me to fuck myself. And here's my favorite part. Amazing. Here's my favorite part. The same people who say who get that fuck you credit will buy a copy of the movie. I know they will. So that they can see their name forever on that thing that says fuck you. Right. I mean, that's that's amazing. So Here's my fuck you money. Uh, I... <laughs> or, By the way, see. but here's the thing. Here's Go the ahead. thing, okay? And and in all seriousness, um, look, I am totally cool with people hating the movie. Like, I, like, that's fine. Honestly, Jason Goes to Hell gets talked about more than most of the other Fridays. It does. Yes. Because it's so divisive. Because people want to get into a fight about it. Jason's not a deadite. That's not canon. It's not a Paramount movie. Bullshit. I made a Friday 13th film, an actual Friday 13th film. It is canon. Suck it. <laughs> Jason Jason was resurrected by the, by, by the Necronomicon. That's what I wrote. That's what's in the movie. That's why the Necronomicon is there. Deal with it. I did it. You can hate me for it. That's cool. You can hate that it's there, but it is canon. And I love when people try to say, like, this fan film said blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, no, no. The fan film's not canon. The movies that were made by the studios, whether it's Paramount or New Line, and now Warner Brothers, they're canon. That Those are the movies. But here's the thing, and it's the most important thing. I never go toe-to-toe with somebody who hates the movie and makes them feel like an asshole for hating the movie. I don't do it. I don't do it. You don't like the movie, that's cool. Let's have a discussion about it. Let's talk about it. I'm cool with that. Let's always do that. As long as it stays respectful, I'm great to, to talk about somebody not liking the film. I think that's great. 
Um, and I've always been that way, by the way. I never get combative with people. There's no point. It's your opinion. You're entitled to your opinion. There are movies that I'm not going to like that you love. So that's that's fair. Um, but it's how we all treat each other that actually matters, that actually counts at the end. And I got to tell you, you know, um, I try my best, not just with the people who are fans, not just with the people who are lovely to me. I try my best with even the people who hate me for whatever reasons um, <clears throat> to try to come at them with, with love. Yes. Um, because I think at the end of the day, look, you know, I want to be respected for the work I, I've done. Absolutely. I want to make movies that, I, that people love and that I'm proud to that I, that I made. But more importantly than anything else, man, I, I just want to leave this world better than when I got here. And the only way you're going to do that is by lighting a little bit of a, of a, a flame in each person's heart that you meet. Um, you know, Johnny Carson said it when he was alive, but, you know, it takes just as long to sign an autograph and say a nice thing as it does to be an asshole. It takes just as long. And you know what? I try my best to always come at everybody with respect and care and love because that's the way I would want to be treated. So even the people who tell me, I, you know, you rape my childhood. I'm like, okay, cool. Let's talk about it. What did I do to rape your childhood? And let's break it down. Let's figure it out because I don't want you to feel that way. And if, if I did something to really hurt you, I will have no problem apologizing for hurting you. By the way, I've never had to apologize. And it's funny with that. And I know you've said it before too. It's how many people bashed a movie, not only may have multiple copies and bought you that swimming pool, but it's amazing that you have these conversations with folks mm -hmm. that bash the movie, bash the movie, bash the movie. Mm -hmm. And yet their opinion has changed over time. You From, bet. Yeah, you bet. Dude, we, we literally just, um, and it's in, it's in the documentary. We, we, we photographed the entire event. Um, the American Cinematheque, honored the movie uh, last August. Uh, they did a screening of it, an anniversary screening of the film um, on Friday the 13th, on the day of the movie was released on August 13th last year. Um, and we didn't just have a sold out crowd. We broke their computer server. We broke the server for the tickets. And when I got there, not only was the place wall to wall full, there was a line of 40 people waiting outside who couldn't get in. And that's what the movie is now. Like the movie is, it's, it's a different experience. Man. Like people are being wildly sweet and lovely about the film. Um, I think that it's getting, it's getting a little bit of that sort of Halloween three wave of people going like, wait a second, what were we bashing? And um, I, do you guys watch Joe Blow? Do you guys ever, you know, do you watch Joe Blow videos on, on YouTube? I have. Yeah. Um, they just did a, what the fuck happened episode about Jason goes to hell. And it's fantastic. And it's like, I, I, and at first I didn't want to watch it. I was like, oh, they're going to bash the movie. I can't take it. And I, I don't need that. And Deborah watched it. Deb watches, Deb watches anything where like, I might be like, oh, come on. Um, she watches, she comes down to my, my office and she says, honey, it's a love letter. I was like, really? She says, you got to watch the thing. And I watched it and I was like, oh man, this is really nice. Like they were awesome. So much so I re reached out to the guys at Joe Blow and I said, guys, 
I love the video you, you guys made. Um, can I use pieces of it in the documentary? They were like, you're kidding. You're actually coming to us because you loved our thing. You want to put it in the, I was like, absolutely. And they signed off on it. It's in the movie. It's in the doc. Aaron, I think you're absolutely right that there are a lot more fans now. I think they're, it, it's nostalgic, right? So people are more forgiving um, these days. Gosh, I remember going to see it. I think I was a junior in high school. Um, well, I'm curious to know, well, two things please, I want to bring up. Please, please. And one I don't think many people talk about is the famous Creighton Duke barter system that he has as far as finger breaking. I thought hilarious in so many levels. Thank you. And but I'm curious to also know with that, where did you come up with that thought process? Mm-hmm. Why do you think the original stuff was sucking? <coughs> what do you mean the original stuff? That like the, you were looking at stuff and go, I heard there was stuff that people would go, that sucks. That later on were appreciated, say with Creighton or yeah, there's just a lot of different things that people go, ah, oh, that Here, sucks. But then they come back to appreciate it. Here's here's the thing. I, the, look, I think um, the I'll take the second part of your question first and the, the first part second. I think that um, the thing that people hated about Jason Goes to Hell is that I blew up Jason seven and a half minutes into the movie. That's it. That's what they hated. They hated that there was no hockey mask, um, which is not true. There's a lot of hockey mask in the movie. And in fact... If you count up the number of minutes that Jason's actually on screen, he's on screen way more than almost any of the other films. So uh, not only that, but I bent over backwards to make sure the mask kept reappearing when people who were possessed by Jason would walk past any reflective surface and you'd see the mask. So that was that was not easy to do, by the way. There was no digital back then. I had to do everything live on camera uh, not, not easy stuff guys. So, um, so there's a lot of mask in the movie. That's what people are upset about. Quite frankly, if the mask had been the whole film, everybody would have loved everything else. They would have. And um, you know, when you bring yeah. that up, I got to interrupt. And it was, oh, please, please. With that being said, I was watching some of the extras on this lovely shout documentary. It's a, and great, it, it's a great disc. They, they did a whole thing, the whole package. They did. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, but within Jason Goes to Hell, there's a interview you did at length with them for the uh, extras. And you, by the way, by the way, I did that interview with Peter Brackey, who's the historian on the documentary we're making, and with Eddie Samuelson, who's the director of the documentary we're making. They bolted the shop disc. That's how we met. And well, you mentioned that if you can go back in time, like you said, they didn't have digital. You would have tried to when the evil was say leaving. Yes. You would have tried to incorporate well, the not mask even, there. Not, not necessarily when it was leaving. When the when the the idea and why Josh melts, why the melting man sequence happens, is that the evil Jason's evil is so intense inside this human host that the body starts to just devolve and break down. It just literally it's like acid from the inside, right? And I wanted the as the person got sicker and sicker, their eyes and their, 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 and there would be holes that would start to like deteriorate on the person's face. And slowly you would see the hockey mask emerging out of the person's flesh. So literally I wanted it to be that people became more and more mask like as they got more and more of the evil eating away at their soul. That was the idea. 
we couldn't afford it. <laughs> we just simply couldn't do it. And I kept, I kept asking Bob Kurtzman, who's a freaking genius. And my brother for the last 30 years, I kept saying, dude, how can we do this? He's like, Adam, we'd need another million dollars to do that. So it was impossible. Uh, of course, Bob wanted to do it. Greg Nicotero was the one who had the purse strings was like, you're out of your mind. We're not doing it. Um, Greg is still pissed at me for Jason Does Tell because K&B lost money on that movie because they, Bob just said never said no to me. It was like, oh, we'll do that too. Okay. <laughs> there was no money left. But um, on the second part of your question. Okay. Um, the scene between Creighton Duke and Stephen Freeman is, um, is first off, it's my second favorite scene in the film. Um, it is my favorite piece of dramatic construction I've ever been involved with, however. And what I mean by that is that movie is what's called um, the Von Helsing scene. Okay. So that's the scene where the obstacle character, Von Helsing, tells the hero, Jonathan Harkness, how he's going to be able to destroy Dracula. Here are the rules. Here's what you need to know. Here's how you battle the monster, okay? Every good horror movie, every one of them has this scene. This happens and, and there's always an obstacle character who teaches the hero how to stop the evil, done. Okay, the problem is those scenes are as dull as dishwater and everybody always goes off to get a sandwich when those scenes happen. Sure, it's just it's just it's just dull. It's all plot, 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 exposition, plot. Okay, so because um, Creighton Duke was the way that Dean Laurie and I were able to get Quint into Jason Goes to Hell, because that's all Creighton Duke is. Creighton Duke is the black cowboy version of Quint from Jaws. And Jaws is, for Dean and I, like there's no movie more important than, to, than Jaws to all of cinema. So we wanted to have our own version of Quint, Creighton Duke, which is why Creighton Duke says in his first scene in the movie, or his second scene in the movie, um, I'll get you the mask, the machete, the whole damn thing. He literally says the line right out of Jaws. Okay, because we were announcing this is our Quint. Here's what's awesome. When we hired, when I hired Stephen Williams, okay, when Stephen Williams became my Creighton Duke, I got access to an actor who is so batshit crazy. What, what, what? That the ideas that he had made what was already a perverse, sadistic character into something far more interesting and far more amazing. And he came to me, Stephen had read the scene, and he said, I... I want to treat it like, like a prison scene, but almost like I'm going to ask Steven for, for sex. I was like, okay, this is awesome. Like I'm loving everything about this. And it's why he takes Steven's hand to begin with. And he's caressing his hand and Steven's looking at him like, what do you want? And he's like, you got to pay. And it was this idea of like, I'm going to do the typical prison scene. Right now. Here's the thing. Dean and I knew we had seven and a half pages of ridiculous gobbledygook to get the audience to, to remember so they can enjoy the rest of the movie and watching us go out and get Jason. Okay, so we didn't want anybody out to go, to go and get popcorn in that scene. We wanted them to actually sit in the theater. So how do you do that? Well, you do it by making the hero pay for the information. And the way that he has to pay is through paying. 
if the hero has to have an a, a, a intimate moment with pain involved, now you've got the Matrix, okay? Keanu Reeves doesn't learn about the Matrix just in conversation. Keanu Reeves learns about the Matrix by getting his ass kicked. And by the way, I'm talking about a movie that happened after Jason Goes to Hell, because here's the thing. There's not a lot of movies that did what we did before us. We were kind of a little bit, we were doing something kind of cool and new. Creighton breaking those fingers, which by the way, is idiotic. Like Steven has to have a physical fight the rest of the movie and he's got broken fingers on his hand. So it's completely idiotic. So what? So what? It's great movie logic, okay? He's turning this guy into a warrior by breaking the fingers of the hands he's going to need to battle Jason. It's it's stupid. Movie it's, logic? M- logic, logic. Absolutely. And so for me, um, what's wonderful about that scene is that the audience, the number of people in the audience who really think that they saw those fingers get snapped. By the way, there's no makeup effect in that entire scene. It's only a sound effect. It's sound effect and acting. That's it. It's all Which it there's is. a story behind that as well, too, with the sound effect guy, right? There is. There is. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our sound effects engineer, uh, Phil, uh, who's a genius, really a genius. Um, How is it? Three finger Phil or something? I don't seven know. finger Phil. Um, he was missing the, these three fingers. And um, and he... Uh, the, the the finger snaps were very realistic, but they were very quiet. There were these very, like, very minor snaps. And I was in the, the mix and I said, Phil, you, you got to bring up those finger snaps, dude. The, I'm not, I got to feel my, my back teeth like hurt when I hear them. And he's like, all right, well, I'm already pushing them, but I'll push them up more. And I'm like, okay, thanks, man. And he would push them up more. Like, I mean, guys, so little. And, and I kept going back like, Phil, please make the finger snaps louder. We kept going back and back. And I'm like, dude, make the snaps louder. And he says, I think I know what the sound of finger snapping is. <laughs> and I said, "Awesome, <laughs> get your stumps out of my face and put up the sound. And he did. And he hated it and thought it was ridiculous. Our first screening our first screen of the movie, our test audience. That scene happens. People were literally hiding under their chairs. People were so like, oh God, every time a finger snap happened, it was more amazing than some of the giant effects that happened in the film. Those, those non-effect effects, people lost their minds. And I looked over at Phil and he looked back at me. He was like, yeah. But, so, you know, you know, it was, it was, I mean, it's a great story because Phil was amazing about it. And I was like, and it was, it was one of those things where he's like, he's going to intimidate me because he lost fingers. I'm like, I'm sorry you lost your fingers. I didn't do that to you. Can you please put the sound effect up in my movie? Yeah, so, yeah. The, the funny part about that is too, it logic, logic kicking in here. I think people can have that potential fear of, fingers being lost or oh you bet or- oh you bet that let's put it this way when you watch um there's uh you ever see the movie brubaker i haven't no okay it's robert redford it's a prison film by the way it's really the first true screen performance of morgan freeman um and it's a remarkable performance you only got one scene in the film it's one of the best scenes in the film 
there's a scene in the movie I remember as a kid, and I was really little when that movie came out, um, where a guy, where I think it's uh, David Keith, gets a um, gets a splinter in his palm, like a big chunk of wood splinter in his palm. And I remember as a kid going like, ow, oh, and it hurt. Like my hand hurt watching this guy get a splinter, right? Everybody knows what a splinter is. Everybody knows what it feels like to get a paper cut. Whenever someone wants to use a chainsaw to cut someone across the stomach, I'm always like, well, yeah, it's fine. No one knows what that feels like because no one's ever recovered from that injury. Just a flesh wound. Right, exactly. So here's the thing. There's something about intimate violence that I think is really compelling. Um, And uh, it's why in Secret Santa, you know, the first... (laughs) the first act of violence in the movie is someone getting forked. So someone gets a fork in their neck. Well, it's just the tines that are in the neck and they happen to hit the carotid artery. So the guy's going to go, but, but it's such an intimate piece of violence and it's a fork. It's not a knife. It's not the traditional weapon. It's something that you eat with every day. And people go like, Oh God, like you recoil from something that feels commonplace. And so for me, that finger breaking scene, dude, that's, it's, I get a better reaction. Look, between that and, you know, poor Deputy Josh in the stirrups, um, there are scenes in that movie that get such a beautiful audience reaction. And by the way, literally, we just watched it on 35 millimeter at, at the American Cinematheque. People were losing their minds in those scenes. I mean, losing their minds. And they've all seen the movie a hundred times. And I know Aaron will appreciate this thing because obviously you could see his Zoom name, Aaron Movies. He's yeah. a movie freak, TV freak. And I mean that <laughs> respectfully. I'm not. Uh, no, go ahead. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> but I know you'll appreciate this. Sure. And I know Adam was obviously in love with her. But I'm curious to know, because it took months and months for most of the casting for the whole project. But yet it was two hours to convince Aaron Gray. The rumor has it. So why was it so quick for her? Here's what happened. Aaron did not want to do the movie. Okay, Aaron had no interest in doing Jason Goes to Hell. Aaron, uh, and funny enough, right before I met Aaron, I, I sat with Tippi Hedren for a couple of hours before Aaron came in. Tippi Hedren came in to play that same role. Um, so Aaron comes in to meet with me and I was, look, come on, man. You know, I, I was a kid when Buck Rogers came out. I was a kid when Silver Spoons was on. I mean, she's, you know, she's a work of art. She's like a walking work of art. She's extraordinary. Um, but I also knew that she had really been treated like a model her whole career. She'd never really been treated like an actor. She'd been treated like a model. And so she came in to meet with me. The reason she met with me is that her son was a giant horror movie fan, like loves horror movies, right? And he really wanted to get into facts, but he was like a teenager. And so she came in there to advocate for her kid to get some sort of internship or PA job on her movie. I'm not kidding. And I loved her for this. I was like, oh my God, you're like, okay, now you're not just this like spectacular walking piece of art. You're like this amazing mom. You're like the coolest woman ever. And so I said, look, I said, Aaron, I I understand your trepidation about doing a film like this. I said, but here's the thing. 
if you do the movie. I want to do the least amount of makeup that you've ever had on, on your face, ever in a movie. I don't want to hire you to be a model. I want to hire you to be an actor. I want to see who Aaron Gray is. And I'm casting you because I think you're awesome. Not because I think Buck Rogers is awesome, but because I think you're awesome. And I was able to speak to the fact that I'd watched every episode of Buck Rogers. And if you watch her, it's amazing. Her other female co-star in that, in that show never gets better. She never gets better. Erin Gray, from the pilot to episode two, gets better at her job. In the next episode, she's better. She's better. She's better. Her performance, it's, it's unbelievable. The first, the pilot, she's terrible. And it's like watching a model get a Jan acting job. <clears throat> By the end of season one, oh my God, she's an actor. Like, she's actually an actor. That I knew. I recognized that. And we talked about that. We had a long conversation about that. And I think that Aaron was being spoken to in a way that no director had talked to her like that before. Had talked to her about the craft of acting, which is what she was really interested in. She signed immediately. Like, that day. Done. It was done deal. And it was simply because, you know, um, I look, you know, I've taught acting since I was 15 years old. I started my first theater company when I was 15. And, um, I, my whole, my, most of my family are actors. They're all rather successful. Um, something you guys might, might not know at this point. Um, you guys have both seen the burning, correct? Your uncle, you're going to bring up, correct? Yeah. Ned Eisenberg who plays Eddie. That's my uncle. That's my <laughs> uncle, Ned. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep, the one who gets the shears in the throat on the raft. Um, that's Uncle Ned. Uh, my Uncle Joe Ellison is uh, the guy who wrote, directed, and produced Don't Go in the House. So I've been surrounded by this my whole life. My mother was a singer. She did tours all over Europe. So was my grandmother. My brother Kip, of course, who's in Jason Goes to Hell, you know, was also Marius on Broadway in Les Mis. Um, so, I've, you know, I have, a, I have a remarkable family of performers. Because of that, I've learned from birth to respect that craft. Um, I was an actor for a very long time. I still act on occasion. Um, so I understand how to speak with actors in a way that is that 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 speaks their language. So, so yeah, um, you've been around the right. And and I will tell you, it's interesting because um, Aaron, I met with Aaron right right after I had met with uh, Bill Dill, <clears throat> who ended up being my cinematographer on the film. Again, a guy who met with me because his agent was a friend of mine and was right down the hall from our offices at Cunningham Films. And uh, so Bill agreed to come and meet with me, right? Because I had seen all of Bill's work and I was a huge fan. Um, <clears throat> and Bill came in to sit down with me. I was like, oh, I'm going to take a meeting with this kid who's directing this movie. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, Bill was supposed to direct The Jacksons, uh, that, that four-hour um, uh, biopic they did on uh, on ABC, right? And it was uh, you know Jackson's an American family or something like that. And it was this you know the thing about the rise of the Jackson Five. Oh shit! Oh, okay, oh, did, I'm sorry. I had a little bit okay. of a cough. Um, Bill Dill was going to shoot that movie. Was and that was a huge job for Bill. That was a giant thing. It was an opportunity. He came and sat with me. We ended up talking for three and a half hours about the, uh, Orson Welles's The Magnificent Ambersons. 
which, by the way, is an influence on the shooting of Jason Goes to Hell. That's no joke. There's more of the Magnificent Ambersons in that film than any other movie. And uh, Bill Dill walked down the hallway to his agent and said, call the people over at the Jacksons, tell them I can't take the job. I'm going to do this movie. Mm-hmm. And that's how he ended up shooting Jason Goes to Hell. Beautiful. Al, obviously we've been chatting well over an hour. I appreciate the time. I want to wrap with this because sure. the way you explain it, and I know it's been said such as on the the interview with, with Shout sure. and sure. all that, but you explain it to a T because people always gave you shit about the rules of Jason and this, that, sure. the other, but yet we go movie logic versus logic logic again i'm stealing your line sure and you explain have you watched the rest of the series prior to oh Mm -hmm. and as i'm thinking of that you mentioned about the uh asset earlier yeah was it the same asset from jason takes manhattan or was it a different type of asset no No, Um, I was told by not only by Sean, but also by New Line to completely disregard that part eight had ever happened, that my film was taking place after part seven. They did not. Paramount was to say they were embarrassed was would be a way understatement of of Jason Takes Manhattan. Um, And by the way, I think there's great stuff in that movie. So I'm not I'm not someone who hates that film. Um, I was just instructed. You have to disregard that movie. And, you know, again, guys, I was 22 when I booked this job. So I did what I was told to do. Sean Cunningham said, get rid of the fucking mask. I went, you got a boss. I don't know how the hell I'm going to do it, but all right. Okay, make it happen. Um, So, you know, you you do what you're told by your bosses because they're the ones with the money and they're the ones with the rights to the character. And you want to make a movie that everybody's happy with. Um, So I did all of that. That's a whole uh, other story because sure. Sean, Sean lied on video at a con and all that. There's, over and over again. He keeps yeah, lying. By the way, he's also he's also lied and said that he he reshot 60, 60 some percent of my movie. Sean literally shot three shots in the film. Three shots. <clears throat> One of those shots was shot by Sean because Kerry Keegan and I couldn't get along anymore. That And that's a whole other story that I won't get into. Um, and, uh, the other two shots he shot because I was shooting other shots because we had to have a second unit going and Sean didn't trust Bob Kurtzman to shoot two of the shots that he, that he wanted. So he did it himself. Fine. That's literally all he shot in the movie. And by the way, that's one of the things that this documentary really goes into is that that is some bullshit, um, that Sean tried, Sean, Sean tries to divorce himself from the movie, but says that he shot 60% of the film. Which is it, Sean? You know, um, this is also Sean Cunningham who thinks the people who like these movies are idiots, who said that to me many times. But he likes their money when they go buy tickets or DVD. Oh, dude, he loves the money. Oh, he loves the money. Oh, no, 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 the money is awesome. He digs that. That's all good. By the way, and by the way, to his credit, He is one of the most skillful, remarkable producers I've ever worked for. He he made my experience of shooting that film so easy because he made sure I had everything I needed to make the movie. He did. 
He was an incredible line producer. He's incredible behind the scenes at working the money. And he, he is a guy who can get a dollar out of a dime. He's that guy. He is. So I give Sean credit for everything. And by the way, I give him, look, I don't have a career without Sean Cunningham. The career that I have is because Sean shepherded my career into being. So all of that is there. By the way, Sean Cunningham was, was helpful when I was 15 opening my first theater company. So Sean was like a father to me. The problem is, is that when real money gets involved, his relationship with you doesn't mean shit anymore. Now it's about money. And that's the shame is that I don't have a, I don't have a relationship with Sean because, because of money. Um, and that sucks. Cause I, I, I love Sean very much. He treated me the way he treats a lot of people who he's worked with. Um, please, you know, God bless Jim Isaacs. And, and it's a, a horrible shame we lost him, but Jim got treated way worse than I did by Sean. And Jim was a friend of Sean's. So, you know, this is the way, again, I, I don't want, I don't want to leave this world uh, with people feeling about me the way that I know there are people who feel this way about Sean. Well, do you think you can ever mend certain fences with Sean? Sean called me after I made um, Let It Snow. And I had gotten the t- two of the best reviews I've ever gotten in my career in variety in the Hollywood reporter. We had, we had just won. We had swept the awards at the Los Angeles international film festival at the American film uh, Institute. And we killed it. Like we, we, we were just doing great. And then Sundance asked for the movie to be shown. We never applied to Sundance. They asked us to show the movie there. Um, I mean, it was kind of an incredible run that happened. And then my brother and I wrote five TV pilots because of that movie. It was crazy. And Sean called me the day those reviews came out and left a message on my, on my, on my home phone. Hey, Adam, uh, Sean Cunningham here. <laughs> I just wanted to say I had a boy. I read the reviews really great. I always knew you'd do great, buddy. <laughs> I never called Sean back. I never called him back. Um, Sean, Sean never called people because he was proud of them. He called people because he saw money floating around the water. And he saw that somebody that had worked his ass off. I, you know, the only reason I got Jason Goes to Hell is because I brought Sean uh, a movie called Johnny Zombie that ended up becoming My Boyfriend's Back. And Sean bought that film. I was supposed to direct that movie. That was my movie. I had shepherded that film with Dean Laurie for, for three years. And Sean, instead of selling it to New Line, who wanted to make the movie and would have made the movie I wanted to make, an R-rated horror comedy in the vein of Shaun of the Dead, um, he sold it to Disney and made a family movie that for, you know, for eight and a half million dollars. And Disney was never going to let a 22-year-old direct an eight and a half million dollar Disney movie. It's never going to happen. Plus, they wanted to make a neutered movie, which I had no interest in. I didn't want to make a PG-13 version of that movie. We'd written a horror comedy that was gory and had musical numbers. We had musical numbers. None of that exists, you know? Um, We were doing this, like, insane Edgar Wright-like movie before there was an Edgar Wright. And uh, Sean went for the money and screwed me over, which is fine. That's fine. That's that's business. business. That's business. I get it. 
uh, he made a shit ton of money and he turned around and I said, you owe me a movie. And he said, if you get the, if you get the fucking hockey mask out of the film, I'll let you write and direct the, the next Friday 13th movie that, that new line is making. That's how it happened. Um, so, um, Sean gave me a career. Absolutely. I put millions and millions and millions of dollars in Sean's bank account. So the quid pro quo was, was really well handled there. And Sean saw that one of his ducklings had gone off and become, you know, a little bit of a cinematic swan and he wanted to jump on board. I know who Sean is. I did see Sean at the signing of the book for Crystal Lake Memories. Um, I, I'm always cordial. I'm never rude to somebody. Um, you know, there were niceties. That's it. And that's literally the last time I saw Sean. But do um, you uh, speak with his son still? At least. Or- Noel, Noel actually sends me messages every once in a while. And he actually, <laughs> he, he recently was signing at a convention with his dad. Uh, and Noel asked a person who got his signature, who, who, who bought a signature, he asked him to send me a picture of the signature and the signature said, Noel, it was on a Jason goes to hell poster. And it said, Noel Cunningham, assistant editor, director's roommate. And, um, and that made, that made me really smile. Look, Noel is, uh, Noel was my best friend, my whole growing up. I, I love Noel like a brother. Um, I, I think, um, I think sometime when, after Sean passes, Noel and I can probably be close friends again. Cause I love Noel. He's, he's an amazing person. He's also a brilliant guy. Um, and, um, yeah, I think that that can absolutely happen. And I, I hope, I hope to men, look, I don't want to have any broken fences. And the truth is, is that, look, I would be cordial and lovely with Sean. I wouldn't be a dick about it at all, but Quite frankly, I don't think Sean wants to be my friend. I don't think I don't know if Sean has a lot of friends. Um, uh, and that's OK. And by the way, the people who love him love Sean. Look, Harry Manfredini, who does a, who, who gave a beautiful interview for the movie, is love Sean. They're close friends. Andy Block is a close friend of Sean's and says lovely things about Sean. So I'm not in the business of like, I want people to shit talk Sean Cunningham. I'm not in that business. I have no care. I don't care about that. Um, I want everybody to love everybody. Uh, but you know what? If you lie about me, I'm not going to act like everything's cool, uh, because I'm having some success and you want to what own part of that. No, nope. Sorry. You don't get to do that. Well, where can folks check out your upcoming project, social media, all that fun stuff. Awesome. So uh, social media, I'm really easy to find. Um, on Instagram, I'm Adam Marcus 13. I'm also Adam Marcus 13 on Twitter. Um, uh, Facebook is always a good place to jump, jump on and, and say hi. Uh, there's also on Facebook, uh, Jason Goes to Hell, the final fan page, uh, which is something that was created for me by a couple of amazing dudes, TJ and Corey. They're, they're, they're badasses. Um, and, uh, and that, so that's, that's a, a great place to chat. And I always, I always interact with fans there. Um, 
I am doing a bunch of conventions, um, but I, I'm, I'm, I can't say about any of that just yet, but uh, do try to find me. I'll be out on the con circuit. I am going to be um, at the Renegade Film Festival right outside of Georgia, right outside of Atlanta, Georgia, um, in the beginning of March, first weekend of March. Um, it used to be called the Women in Horror Film Festival. Now it's the Renegade Festival. Um, and I am on the board of that festival. Uh, Vanessa Wright, who is, uh, who's a dollar baby, one of the Stephen King dollar babies. She created the festival. She's a genius. Um, she is actually writing and directing. She co-wrote a script with me. This is kind of amazing. That's been winning a bunch of awards recently, totally out of the blue. She asked if she could send it to festivals. I was like, yeah, go for it. And suddenly it's winning stuff. Um, she is going to be doing a um, uh, one of the seven films in an anthology movie that Skeleton Crew is producing right now called Seven by Seven. Um, it's a horror anthology movie about the seven deadly sins by seven filmmakers. Um, and Vanessa is one of those people. So uh, I'm helping her with the festival. She's helping us with our film and it's amazing. Um, so anybody who's, who's, you know, uh, out in Georgia, uh, the first weekend of March, come out to the Renegade Festival. It's going to be badass. I'm going to be there doing a lot of, uh, I'm going to be doing a couple talks there and presenting a bunch of, of films. Um, so I'm doing that and, uh, Hearts of Darkness, the making of the final Friday should be out by the end of this year. We are wrapping up shooting, uh, next month. Uh, I'm actually shooting my brother, Kip Marcus, next weekend. He's kind of, he's flying into L.A. To, to finally get his interview done. Uh, now that COVID is starting to break down a little bit, we're actually able to start shooting people again. We just shot, and I'm literally giving you guys the exclusive on this. We just shot the very first interview Allison Smith has ever done about Jason Goes to Hell. Nice. So Allison Smith, who plays Vicky, who really is kind of, for my money, my favorite final girl of our movie, even though she gets killed. Um, she is, um, for me, she's sort of the heart of the movie. Uh, Allison uh, spoke to us, gave an amazing interview. She is so beautiful, so remarkable, such a lovely human being, just an incredible person. Uh, so Allison just did that. And also Michelle Clooney just did the very first interview she's ever done about the movie. So Debbie, the poor girl who gets split up the middle uh, in the tent scene, the, one of the greatest deaths in all of Friday the 13th. She is, uh, she is finally, for the first time, spoken about it. And by the way, not only that, we actually photographed her watching the unrated version of her death, which she had never seen before. Wow. It nice. was amazing. That's awesome. It's yeah. amazing. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's funny. Uh, I... Uh was we hosted a watch along of Halloween, which Halloween was it? Uh, with Marianne Hagen. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Curse of Michael Myers. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Six. Six one. Yeah. Thank you. I could see that's why he's the movie man. Absolutely. Was, so <laughs> it was funny because, yeah, Marianne's become a friend and everything. And hope you feel better soon if you hear this. She was so thrilled because you brought that up about seeing the unrated. Yeah, we watched the unrated version of that film, and she was like, "I've never saw that other than when we did a screening mm -hmm. before release." So, and this was a twenty-five year period, and she's like, "Oh my god, I was so I was yeah. glad to be able to give a similar smile to yeah her yeah. her that night." Um, I've also got uh, I've got a feature that I'm directing later this year down in Louisiana. It's actually the biggest movie I've ever directed, called Dread. 
Uh, Deborah and I wrote the script. Uh, Skeleton Crew is producing it. Um, so Brian Saxon is the producer on the film, along with a guy named Anton Ernst, um, who uh, actually is a South African filmmaker who produced our film Momentum that Deborah and I wrote and produced with him many years ago um, with Morgan Freeman and Olga Kirilenko and James Purefoy. So we're doing that later this year. Uh, we have a new TV series called Mosaic. Is this the one that was uh, similar to your life? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, this is the one that that has a lot to do with, yeah, with my growing up. Um, and also, uh, we are developing with Stephen Williams a Creighton Duke-inspired movie. Um, so because of the rights issues and everything else that's going on, we have figured out a way to kind of separate Stephen from the franchise. And uh, we're doing a, a movie inspired by the work that Stephen and I have done together over the years. So, uh, so that is a movie called Hell's Bells, and that will be coming uh, next year. So, yeah. Well, hopefully my favorite officer from the Blues Brothers will. Oh, wait, wrong, wrong uh, genre. Sorry, folks. <laughs> but it's true. But it's true. Oh, and one other thing I will I will say this because we are we're actively in this right now. Um, we I, I, and speaking to what we talked about earlier about, you know, wanting to make horror movies that, that have something to say. There's a film that we're, we're making uh, with an incredible production company called Six with Heels Productions. Um and a script that, that Deborah and I wrote with a, a fantastic writer, actress named Lindsay Hollister called Fat Camp Massacre, um, which is uh, for people of size, what Get Out was for people of color. Um, it's, uh, you know, being, being heavy set in America is sort of the, the last place where people can just make fun of you right to your face. And it seems like it's totally okay to do that. And this is a movie that gives a big middle finger to all of that bullshit. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's this movie that confronts uh, body dysmorphia, but does it in a camp setting, um, uh, sort of Friday the 13th style, I guess. Uh, it also has the single most disturbing thing uh, we've ever written in it. Um, a scene that no one will ever forget once they've seen it. Nice. So, yeah, so we, we got a lot, a lot on the horizon right now. A lot of really cool, fun, exciting stuff. Well, make sure you guys follow him on social media and such. And don't forget to look up Skeleton Crew and all the, all the fun little gadgets these, these kids use today. Instagram and Facebook and all that fun stuff. But Adam Marcus, thank you so much. My pleasure. My absolute pleasure. Guys. try downloading this new classic set of music that will be dropping so far off the charts there's bound to be injuries. <laughs> 
Now that's what I call depressing. It's gonna make those who are even close to having the slightest glimmer of hope wanna jump off the highest of planks. For those that are getting Now That's What I Call Depressing, you'll be getting that song that reminds you of that relationship with those cougars, Wrinkled Ladies. For those who weren't really into cougars, but those who had that special friend while Sincere Black 2B, we got for you this clusterfuck that will put you in therapy for years to come. With cheeks wide open. Who the fuck writes this shit? Oh hell, we're still recording this commercial. Always with you, it cannot be done. Those that rather have it out than in. This loaded hit will be dropping soon. Far thing in the USA. For those who place their order by calling or ordering online, the next hundred folks will receive their choice of either a noose of good quality that won't snap, an installation of a new outlet next to your bathtub so you can now blow dry your hair in a full tub. Or the choice of the right gang to just beat the fuck out of you. Call us today at 1-800-FUCK-THIS. Hey, this is Kane Hodder. You are listening to Crazy Train Radio. Keep listening, or else. 